Welcome back to Seattle's Morning News. I'm Travis Mayfield in for Dave Ross. Joining us now as he does every Monday for Crime and Punishment, a look at the recent crime data in King County. Casey McNorthney with the Prosecutor's Office. Casey, good morning. So what have you got for us this morning? So last week there was this great meeting between Seattle Police and the King County Prosecutor's Office going over, and and this was the first of many meetings to come, saying, hey, here's here's what we did with the cases that you sent to us. And and it was interesting. It, It was a chance for prosecutors to say, uh, you know, here's here's our work, and then to have them ask questions and and to kind of make sure that we're on, on on the same page. And if there's anything that they wanted to bring up, to say, hey, you know, what's happening to these cases? What can we do to make sure that we're on on the same page? And the mayor's office was there too, just basically say like, hey, let's make sure that we're collaborating correctly. And there was some crime data, and there were some big headlines when it came to crime data last week as well. Yeah. Uh, can you kind of run through violent crimes, domestic violence, the the list of where we stand? Yeah. So the most common crime type. Uh, in terms of categories, if you look overall where you combine all the categories, property crime is uh, outranks violent crime. But if you look at the categories, violent crime was number one for all of 2022 cases for Seattle um, in terms of that category. And then domestic violence was number two. There were hundreds of those cases uh, as well. And then the most common property crime that most people would say, yep, I, that's either happened to me or I, or I know somebody is vehicle thefts and vehicle prowls. Uh, because once you once you steal a car like that, that reaches the felony level. What, what surprises people sometimes, what's not on there is if you see somebody walk out with a, a basket full of stuff out of Bartels or Safeway, which is incredibly frustrating when you see that, that under the law isn't a felony crime. But if you do it over and over and over, then you can get organized retail theft. Or if you threaten somebody, that's where it rises to the, the felony level. So we get those cases. But, you know, it's as frustrating, you know, for us to see people do that, too. And then, you know, d- just to have uh, a lesser penalty when it's, you know, you know, so blatant about it, it's pretty frustrating. And you have folks in your office who'd crunch these numbers. And, and, and as the as the public, it's like incredibly important for us to know this sort of stuff. But I, I imagine having the, the mayor involved and the police involved so that they know the data and they know where to focus is also important. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And there's a guy, David Baker, who's a senior deputy prosecutor, who's got a lot of experience in the courtroom. But he's such a great data expert. The guy, you know, who really likes to do that data stuff where I would, wouldn't be nearly as good at it. Yeah. You know? and, and, and he really gets into it. And, and um, here's him talking about how, how the meeting went and why it was important. I thought the conversation with SPD went really well. It was a really great conversation. It allowed us to sort of better talk about the work we're doing at the PAO and that the work we're doing with SPD. And so one of the things that we got into in the, the discussion that really was spurred from that is how the KCPAO and SPD can collaborate to sort of better understand what we're both doing in the criminal justice sphere and how we can collaborate to better understand that and better have an impact uh, as kind of a team collaborative effort because we really are working collaboratively with law enforcement in this field. The cases that law enforcement uh, work up and send to us are the cases we're working. And so it's it provides a you know, our data capabilities have increased to the point where it's really provides a useful and interesting view to start looking in at individual police agencies, what work we're doing there and how we can further collaborate. So obviously this data is used by your office. It's used by other entities as well to ensure that we're really focused on all of this. So what if I, as a member of the public, want to see this data? So that's the cool part. So all you've got to do is Google King County Prosecutor's 
data dashboard. And the first result shows you uh, exactly the same data. And you can break it down by uh, each of the different agencies in King County and the crime type and get loads and loads of data there. And that's going to be uh, – that platform is, is – even going to be updated in the next few weeks uh, and the coming year too, and and so if you ever have a question of like, hey, like, how many car thefts are actually prosecuted, and if a case is declined, why does that happen? You can look it up right there, and you can get loads and loads of data. Not everybody realizes that it's there, but it is there for the public because essentially the, the public is paying for it, and they should get those answers. Yeah. So why do you think getting this data to the public and, and to the police is so important? Well, because the more people know, the better they can understand it you know and if they have frustrations they can tell us if they like it they can tell us that too but basically people should know what's going on and and here's a king county prosecutor lisa mannion uh explaining that well first police are our partners right and i want our office to be a really good partner to law enforcement the dashboard is a way for the prosecuting attorney's office to hold itself accountable to police and to show its work. I want all of our law enforcement partners in all parts of King County to know what happens to the cases and the investigations that they refer to us. This is our way of reflecting back how we use their important work to file charges, to hold people accountable, and also where we decline cases, either in the interest of justice or because the evidence doesn't meet our filing standards. Okay, so this is just Seattle data at this moment. What if I live in Federal Way or Bellevue or, you know, somewhere else? It's actually every city. And and so you can break it down by uh, Kent Police or Seattle Police, things like that. And what's next is that same meeting that we had with Seattle Police, where we walked through that data with them. We're going to have those meetings with each of the... Uh, Departments in King County, so uh, Shoreline, the Sheriff's Office, uh, Auburn, Tukwila, Federal Way, you name it. Awesome. Great. Yeah, pretty cool. Let's do a quick kind of round-robin update on some of the cases that we have been reporting on in the last week or so. Um, so Kate Stone, one of our reporters, has been spending some time talking about the Echo Glen escape where all three yeah. of the teens here. Um, the question has been like, you know, where do we stand in that case and why were they even in Echo Glen to begin with with no fencing? Right. Exactly. So uh, all three of those have been charged. We charged those cases immediately when uh, they came to us. And a lot of people ask that of like, well, you know, why did you put them, you know, when two have been already convicted of murder, why did you put them in Echo Glen? And the short answer is the prosecutor's office doesn't decide that. Once someone is sentenced, whether they're an adult or a, a juvenile, that goes to the state. Uh, for adults, it's the DOC, the Department of Corrections. Uh, for juveniles, it's juvenile rehabilitation. They choose Echo Glen. And so prosecutors don't really have a say in, in, in where someone goes. Okay. What about the Ravensdale father murder case? Yeah, that was such a tragic yeah. case. Um, the defendant was in court last week. He pleaded not guilty. That was ongoing. And there's also uh, a, a, there was a shooting outside Ballard High School. Oh, right. Yes. Uh, just uh, a few days ago, there was an arrest there. The victim survived. The defendant was charged with first degree murder. Um, it, that doesn't appear to be totally random, although I'm not sure what the motive was exactly. Um, and then there's also, um, there was a case that Seattle police posted about late last week where there was a uh, several robbery suspects who were arrested in Seattle's Sandpoint neighborhood. We expect to get those cases uh, either today or tomorrow, and, and we'll act on that one right away. Casey McNerthy with the King County Prosecutor's Office. It's always good to talk to you on a Monday morning. Thank you very much. It's great to see you, Travis. Thanks great. a lot. 
decades, Treehouse and Cairo News Radio have been committed to supporting thousands of kids in foster care across Washington State. That includes our Holiday Magic program, which started as an idea 35 years ago to make the holidays a little brighter. Cairo News Radio's Heather Bosch reports. It began when Carrie Kruger was having lunch with her Cairo 7 TV colleagues. Kruger had just produced a series of stories on foster care. She noticed the children placed with families usually brought very little with them. It sort of struck me that the kids didn't have anything of their own. And a lot of them came in with just a paper bag or a small backpack, but it really had nothing of their own. With the holidays approaching, Kruger and her Cairo co-workers wanted to do something to benefit the community. We were like, what if we let people buy holiday gifts for foster children? That's, that's how it started. The idea was to have community members gather the gifts that children requested. The kids filled out a form asking for one item they wanted and one they needed. They were handwritten. I mean, I'm talking about pre, pre-internet, pre pre-computers. And so we had these stacks of letters that were in the children's own handwriting. The experience, she says, was moving. It's emotional. It's emotional when you see in the kids' own handwriting what they want and what they need. And the requests were not extravagant. It struck me at the time that the kids were very humble in what they would ask for. You know, like they, they weren't putting together giant wish lists, but they were often asking for things that were pretty basic, like warm socks. She says children in foster care often said a jacket of their own was what they needed. As for what they wanted. Bicycle was probably one of the most most common ones. And the community then, as it does now, responded. People were walking in and dropping things and that beautiful lobby was absolutely filled with stuff. And literally the lobby was filled with bicycles. So why has Holiday Magic been successful? She says when we think about children in foster care, we realize they may have left a difficult situation and brought little with them. And so I think it just kind of triggers something in us, a sense of our own good fortune in terms of the lives that we are lucky enough to be in and a sense of wanting to make it better for others. Looking back. The most meaningful thing for me when I reflect on it is that this really did just start as an idea. And we it wasn't sophisticated and we didn't have you know, big corporate backing or anything like that. We just had an idea about a way to make a difference. And it's made a difference for 35 years. If you want to support children and youth in foster care this holiday season, head to MyNorthwest.com slash Holiday Magic or text MAGIC to 888-973-5476. Heather Bosch, Cairo News Radio. Seattle's Morning News. Good morning. I'm Colleen O'Brien, along with Travis Mayfield and Chris Sullivan, too. Joining us now, as she does every Monday, CBS business analyst Jill Schlesinger, getting us ready for next year, which is kind of a tough sell in December because we're all kind of (laughs) shutting our brains off to enjoy the holidays. So how are you going to sell this on us? I don't know. It's tough. I get it. I mean, I would like to just tell you to spend as much money as you'd like and to pay no attention to the financial ramifications. But that is not how I roll. You'd sell a lot so of books I, that way, I bet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the diet. Eat what you want yeah. and you'll be, you'll be fine. Yeah. Okay. So 
There is this thing called the calendar turning over, and the IRS is guided by a calendar year. Okay, so the thing is that this is the moment, this moment early December is when you can make some changes that could really help you come tax season. And I think that's what I want to really emphasize here. That is that if you go to the IRS website, irs.gov, there is something called a withholding estimator. It is what it sounds like. It's like estimating how much money did I withhold for my future tax bill? This does not take a long time. So you want to make sure and you say, do I have enough money set aside to pay what my taxes will be in April? Why is this important? First of all, people change jobs all the time. So there are people making more money, less money. Maybe someone is in a, you're in a couple and one of you is now self-employed. It's a whole different, um, a whole different uh, ball game when you're self-employed. So you use this estimator to see if maybe you should notify your payroll department. Hey, increase my withholding through the end of the year. So I don't have to write a check in April. Or maybe if you're self-employed, maybe you're going to need to make an estimated tax payment. These are things that you can do right now. And again, with time that is still left on the clock, I think it is important to at least take advantage of that. And Jill, what about retirement planning? Mm, So listen, this is interesting, by the way. If you or someone you love, I mean, if you don't love them, forget it. (laughs) No advice for you. No, No advice. But if you or someone you love is over the age of 72, Okay, and you have a pre-tax retirement account, right? You put money in, you got a tax benefit. If you're over the age of 72, the IRS says you have to take money out every single year. This is called a required minimum distribution. Okay, this is important because if you don't take enough money out, if you don't take your distribution amount out, what happens is the IRS whacks you and they say there is a 50 percent excise tax on what you should have taken. So that's number one when it comes to tax for for retirement. The second part is, you know, look. If you have enough money or you're looking to reduce your tax bill, one thing you can do is you can say to your uh, to your employer or you could even think about this yourself. If you're self-employed, you could put some more money away in retirement, in retirement plans, right? That will help reduce your tax bill. The thing is that I, I'm not sure a lot of people realize this, that for low to, uh, I would say in your in your uh, neighborhood, it would be probably considered low income. If your gross income is $36,500 or less as a single, 73,000 if you're married. If you put money into a retirement plan, you might qualify for extra money from the government. It's called a saver's credit. This can be worth up to two grand if you're single, 4,000 if you're a couple. So it is incredibly motivating to me to be like, oh, wait a second. Even if I don't have a match from my employer, Uncle Sam's going to give me money. This is awesome. So this is something very much worth considering. And if you are that saver, the low income saver, how do you find out if you qualify? Is it irs.gov still? It is. So if you go to irs.gov and you literally just pop into the search bar, Savers Credit, I mean, it, it will come right up. And it's so awesome. I mean, it really, to me, this is like a hidden gem that people are not taking care of, taking advantage of. I love that. You have free money from the government. You rarely see yeah, it. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Exactly right. <laughs> so Jill, I was reading your latest blog post on Jill on Money, and there was one thing that I was like, wait, I knew nothing about this, so I need to ask you about it. I use mm. Venmo. I'm a dad, and all of our like, oh, you got to <laughs> buy the coach's gift. All the parents, you know, Venmo me. Oh, mm. we're booking travel for the soccer team. I'll just book it all, and then everybody Venmos me. And then I see on your blog blog post that coming soon, the government is going to be looking at my Venmo. Well, this is a rule that was already in place. And um, I think all of us went a little bit nuts, like, wait, what? And so here's the thing. If you are a gig worker, it's not so much for you, right? Right. Because like you're just doing sort of like 
basic stuff back and forth, paying people, right? Or even friends. Yeah. But if you're a gig worker, um, there is a rule that went into effect that said if you get any money from a payment platform like Venmo or Stripe or StubHub and you know, you made over a certain amount of money, there was a, f- a tax form that had to be provided. Okay. So let me be clear about this. That current amount, which was in place, is a $20,000 threshold. So it would be like you would have to send, if you had more than $20,000 and 200 transactions with any person on that platform, you would have to send that tax form out. You didn't have that, right? No. Well, the amount went down to $600. I might have reached that. Right. And so everyone's freaking out. They're like, you know, do I have to send a form? Right. And the answer is not ne- not yet. The IRS the put this in place and um, is weird because last year they said they made big fanfare. OK, wait, we're not going to we're going to delay it this year. This thing, this note went out to people like me and said, oh, you know what? You don't have to do it this year either. What? I didn't even know that. So it is delayed again. So right now your threshold is twenty thousand dollars and more than 200 transactions for 2023 next year. Threshold drops to five thousand, and then we're going to get towards that six hundred dollar limit. So, the party's over on those platforms, and that means actually, even if you have like selling tickets on StubHub, that means that if you're paying your um, your trainer on Venmo, and all of a sudden that you add that all up, and it's more than six hundred bucks, you're going to have to send a ten ninety nine k form, wow. and it is a pain in the neck. And what what's going to be the tax? How much are they going to take out if you do go over that limit? I don't know what the penalty is for not doing it, okay. but it's going to be a limit and it's going to be a pain. And we're going to talk a lot about it in the next couple of years, right. especially as more and more people get the, um, you know, who, more and more people will have to actually just like keep track of this because we have so many gig workers now. Well, and so many, as as Travis said, use it's part of the lexicon of parenthood now is just Venmo me, Venmo me. It's like Google it. <laughs> now it's oh, Venmo, man. Venmo. I'm so that's, you know, and it's interesting, um, you know, to some extent, I think that people think that that's like, oh, it's like this mysterious way to pay people. It's not like that mysterious. You still have an intermediary of some sort. You still have a bank or a credit card. By the way, just one quick thing about using those platforms. You know that credit card fees are high. So if you want to actually, if you know the person, you trust the person, uh, you can have it drafted directly from your bank and avoid all fees. Yes, that is very smart. Jill, the most intelligent. I just love talking to you. I was so excited to be able to join you this morning. JillOnMoney.com is where you can find all of her advice. And of course, you know, you always hear her voice on CBS. Jill, thank you. Thanks a lot. Well done, Travis. Well done. You convinced me. Might as well be a sports anchor. <laughs> Don't leave Don't me, tell please. Mike no. That. Don't leave me. A daily dose of kindness brought to you by Heritage Homecraft. A man's dream becoming a commercial pilot seemed impossible, but CBS's Steve Hartman has the story of his perseverance and determination, determination that is to fly against all odds. Although born without hands or feet, 25-year-old Zach Anglin says the only limbs he ever longed for were wings. Always wanted to be a pilot. Unfortunately, no quad amputee had ever become a commercial pilot. Obviously, nothing worth having comes easy. From the time he was born, he was a disciplined and determined child. Adoptive parents Harold and Patty say there was no talking him out of it. So when Zach turned 18, he applied to a flight school. 
that um, said no. There's nothing we can really do for you. We're sorry. The second one said the same. Like, here we go again. As did the third. The same response. And so it went more than a dozen times over. You're not hearing what they're saying. I'm not. Select period. <laughs> My wife will tell you I'm a little bit hard-headed. <laughs> Which is why this hard-headed husband and soft-hearted father <laughs> applied to one more school. The Spartan College of Aeronautics in Tulsa, Oklahoma. They said yes, although Zach's struggle was just getting started. He still needed approval from the Federal Aviation Administration to take the lessons. But the FAA repeatedly, and in no uncertain terms, denied his request. And after the fifth rejection letter, Zach finally gave up. I was like, this is not for me. I, this is impossible to do. And so my mom was over my shoulder at this point, right? And then she's like, you're not done yet. I said, you can never succeed until you've learned to fail. And Patty says her son obviously hadn't failed enough. So Zach kept at it until finally they cleared him for one takeoff. When Zach was given the opportunity to show his potential, it became clear as blue sky that you don't need hands to have wings. Zach graduated from flight school a few years ago and now teaches the same course so many told him he couldn't even take. Why do people need to hear this? Because my story isn't just for amputees. We all go through trials and tribulations. The word impossible is an illusion behind the word possible. And failure, just the turbulence on your journey. Steve Hartman, On the Road, in Tulsa. Joining us now from the G and Ursula show, which you hear right here on Cairo News Radio, 9 to noon, is G. Scott. So it's official. Huskies are in. They play on New Year's Day in the Sugar Bowl. College football playoff semifinal against the Longhorns. And man, what a way to get there. What a fantastic finish against the Ducks. So let's just play the quick call here from ESPN. Michael Penix in the gun. Motion to the right side. Three receivers there. Dylan Johnson off to the right. Penix will pitch it to Johnson. Johnson runs to the 40 to the 35. First down to the 30 and slides down at the 25-yard line. And that's going to clinch it for the Huskies. 34-31. And, of course, the regular season ends 13-0. and mm-hmm. What did you think of this Loved Pac-12 it. championship? It, it, it was good. The University of Washington and all of its fans should be super excited. I think that uh, right now on paper, um, they should be the number one team. Right, um, they got them at number two. They got that uh, that team that's up north of the state of Ohio. They got them number one. Yeah. And so first, let me get to the good, and then I'll go to the bad. Okay. The good is is that the Huskies and coming into this season, I mean, you played. They played way above expectations. No one in their wildest dreams, even the most devout Husky <laughs> fan, yeah. would have never said. You got to go undefeated. You got to win the Pac-12 tur- uh, tournament championship, and you're going to be in the college football playoffs. If you would have told a Husky fan that, they'd have been like, "Take my left arm." Right, right. <laughs> Who's so, back? Do you put that on though? The quarterback? Is it the coaches? It's like who who gets the the title of you did this for the team? Yeah, I'll first start with the head coach, Kalen DeBoer. Okay, and and the reason why I am talking about him is because. The Huskies have won a lot of close games. Mm. And when you win close games, 
that is a, a sign of a winning culture. Oh. That is a sign of a team that trusts not only their teammates, but they trust the coaches, and the coaches trust the players, and that's that kumbaya moment, yeah. and that's why you know everybody's like, well, but they've been barely winning. Winning's winning. Yeah, right. right. Yeah. At the so, end of the day, yeah. And, 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 and that means, so the, the, the experts, right, Vegas and all them, yeah. the ones that like to make a lot of money, yeah. They had them they being said quack, a, quack, quack. They said an eight point, yeah. eight and a half point underdogs yeah. to the Ducks. Yeah. The experts said that. So the Huskies have been defying everything that the Huskies have uh, all the experts have said. So kudos to them. Now let me get to the bad. The bad is they should be the number one team in the country. And it's because it's bad, they should be going to play in the Rose Bowl. It is Awful that you were that talking they about that. Travel down Agreed. to New Orleans. Yes. Before I came in here, your boy went to go look at the tickets. You feel me? Just getting on. I'm not going to say the airlines, but just getting on one airline. Yeah. It's a thousand dollars to get down there, uh. and then to get back. If you want to come back on the second, which is the day after, it's eleven hundred, and that's not uh, what. That's not nonstop. That's that's two yeah. flights. That's too bad. You can't get a nonstop. Until like the fifth, the fourth, the fourth. Yeah. And it's for eight hundred dollars. So why so, the sugar bowl and not the rose bowl? What because what? they're because because the rose bowl is gonna be because they're number two. Yeah. So number two and three will play in, in New Orleans, one and four will play in the Rose Bowl. And so that's where I think that once again, I'm so sick and tired of money. Mm. Talking, yeah, right. Like, like I hope people understand that when I talk about the grossness of money that happens and the decisions that happen behind that, the fact that Florida State did not get in the college playoffs and they're undefeated—that is the, crazy. That's it's one insane. Of the, that's one of the saddest. I know nothing things, about sports, and that's insane. It's one of the saddest things yeah. I've ever seen in, in sports. It, for that to happen, that is sad. But they put Alabama in there, who lost one time. Mm-hmm. They put them. Oh, you know what? I think coming up pretty soon, the SEC and uh, Disney, there will be like a $3 billion contract. What? But you know, you ain't heard it from me. No. I ain't one of gossip. Mm. You know what I mean? Just dropping the bomb and leaving, uh, huh? We love you. Thank you Jesus. Love you guys. God. Thank you very yeah. much. Also feel affirmed that I was like upset yes. about them not being in the Rose Bowl. And here's the guy who like knows about sports being like, no, they should have been. They should have been. And <laughs> my best piece of advice to listeners today is to make sure you tune in to the live cam during the G and Ursula show. So you can see the fashion yeah. plate that oh, is yeah. G Scott oh, today. The shoes too. So put together. All right. You gotta just you gotta peep him. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. You can hear us live every morning on 973 FM or subscribe to this podcast and you'll never miss the show.